0: Welcome back to New Books and East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I am Sarah Bramao Ramos, one of the hosts of the channel. And I recently spoke with Julia Strauss about her new book, State Formation in China and Taiwan, Bureaucracy, Campaign, and Performance. This came out in 2019 with the University of Cambridge Press. This is a really fascinating book and a really ambitious book. It is a comparative study of regime consolidation in the People's Republic of China, the PRC, and the Republic of China, Taiwan, after 1949. And I should add that when I say the PRC, it does focus on one region of the PRC, Sunan, which includes Shanghai. And the book compares how both the PRC and the ROC went about recruiting state personnel, how they used terror to root out real and imagined opponents, how they went about conducting land reform, and throughout all of this, how the PRC and the ROC drew on two different modalities of state building and policy implementation, the bureaucratic and the campaign. And the how here, as you may have been able to tell, is really important, because as Julia shows in each of these case studies, it is really in the how that we see the differences between the PRC and the ROC. Both may have conducted remarkably similar terror campaigns and land reforms, but how they did so is where things start to look really different. And where, as she explains in the book, we start to see the origins of the very different PRC and ROC as they exist today. This is also a really measured, careful, and thoughtful book. Julia is very clear about the finer details here. She explains throughout the limits of her comparison, the challenges of obtaining the right statistics, and then the difficulty of making sense of them. This is not just real comparative history. It is a compelling and nuanced model for how to do real comparative history. I thoroughly enjoyed the book and talking with Julia about it. You will hear us here talk through the contents of the book and also about the work that went into it, which includes getting access to the right information and archives, the joy of having childcare all around the world, and the importance of flexible funding. With that, I hope you seek out the book, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation that follows. So I'm here today with Julia Strauss to talk about her new book, State Formation in China and Taiwan, Bureaucracy, Campaign, and Performance, Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Julia, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Uh, It's my pleasure.
0: Great. So we're going to start at the beginning with your beginning. So could you Tell me a little bit about how you came to the field. How did you come to work on China and how did you come to work on 20th century Chinese politics in particular? Well,
1: this is, it's sort of interesting that everyone has a different, um, somewhat quirky origin story. And mine started with Chinese language, which I became interested in actually before I went uh, to college. Um My parents at that point, when I was in high school, uh, were both associated with Brown University. And since I always liked languages, you know, this was the mid 1970s, I always thought vaguely that I would learn Russian and become a Russia watcher. Um, When this, because of course the Cold War and Soviet Union and all that. And my mother at the time was all but dissertation in linguistics at Brown, and she was sharing offices with, People in linguistics, and at that point in time, uh, the three people who did Chinese were kind of a party fraction within the larger linguistics department. And she got to know people like Jimmy Wren uh, and uh, and uh, Latimer, um, and she liked them. And she thought, well, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna study language anyway, you might as well study one that either pays or might potentially pay. And she said, well, and there are three languages in this world that pay or might potentially pay. And they are Arabic, Japanese, and maybe just maybe Chinese. And so she said, well, forget about Arabic straight away. You're kind of the wrong gender for that. And of Japanese and Chinese, Um, Chinese is much easier. Uh, And uh, the Chinese government has at least a nominal uh, commitment to female equality. And she said this to me in like 1978. Um, and I think that China is really going to open up a lot in the next 20 years. And even if you never use it, you know, you can always uh, impress people that you've learned the characters. So, she started bringing home books on China and leaving them on my bed. And I kind of got interested in it and like thought that was kind of cool. So very unusually for someone who'd never traveled, um, because my parents weren't big on traveling, um, in the 70s, I knew that I wanted to learn Chinese and I probably wanted to be a Chinese major. And at that point in time, it's not like now, there were very, very few small liberal arts colleges that actually taught Chinese with a full major. In fact, I only knew of two, uh, and they were Wellesley, which had a very well-regarded program, and oddly, Connecticut College. Uh, And uh, I went and looked at Wellesley, and it was very impressive, but I really didn't want to be in an all-girls school. Uh, And uh, so I ended up at Connecticut College as a Chinese language major, but uh, just because I wanted to keep things interesting, at that point in time, I thought, well, how can I possibly understand a language in a culture as different from my own as a Chinese if I don't have a better handle on my own? And for that reason, I started to take history classes and actually was a full double major in, of all things, Chinese language and literature on the one hand and <clears throat> history, but it wasn't Chinese history. I majored actually in European intellectual history uh, because they had a very good program in that at Connecticut College at the time. So, uh, when I applied for graduate school in a very, very haphazard way, um, of course, this is before the internet, and you had to write to people and write programs to learn about them. Um, I learned that uh, 20th century China tended to be done in political science departments rather than history departments. This, of course, has all changed dramatically, Uh, but I knew that I wanted to do 20th century because I was sort of leaning towards policy issues anyway, and uh, for a variety of very quirky reasons, I I ended up at Berkeley. because I didn't get any money from any program that I got into. And crudely, I knew that I could get, um, at that point, I think I think this is still the rule, I could get in-state residency in a year at uh, in California, and I could never get state residency for in-state tuition in Michigan, uh, which were the two places I got into. So um, I ended up at Berkeley and did a PhD uh at Berkeley in political science. But again, what I did was very quirky. I did a lot of history with Fred Wakeman, even though he was in a different department. And my real focus ended up being uh, what, was, what was called public administration, but really was a very quirky set of people doing organization theory. And my whole interest was uh, org theory. I thought it just made a huge amount of sense. And so the history that I was getting from Fred Wakeman and the org theory that I was getting from people like David Leonard and Martin Landau and Todd Laporte really seemed to fit together. And Berkeley at that point had an odd enough, quirky enough, yeah, come here, you're pretty smart, you figure it out, laissez-faire kind of approach to things, which was terrific for uh, learning to be an intellectual. It was not so good, actually, for the for the professionalization and learning how to negotiate the field of political science, which is probably why I ended up uh, at the School of Orange and African Studies. Uh, so that's the long origin story, uh, the, the the background. And then uh, when I was doing uh, my PhD. In the, in the mid-80s, it was very clear that you really couldn't get much in the way of access to work on the state uh, for contemporary China, but you could get access in the number two historical archives for the Republican period. So I decided to work on state building, but Originally, looking at civil service uh, and examination systems in the Republican period, particularly the 1930s, because I thought it was going to be a really innocuous topic that really wasn't going to get anybody particularly excited. And of course, when I got to the archives, um, I learned that there was relatively little on examination systems of this sort of documentation that I was expecting. There was enough to get a chapter, but not a whole Uh, dissertation out of it and so I had to scramble around for case studies and I tried this and I tried that and I tried the next thing but eventually um with a side trip to Taiwan I managed to get enough to write up um two other case three sorry three other case studies and what I was interested in crudely was uh questions of success um because the uh the Republican era, particularly under um, the Kuomintang government, was widely perceived as being a failure. And what I found and what I saw was that, well, actually, certain organizations actually, given their time and given their remit, were actually pretty successful. And so this ended up being the basis of the first book that looked at questions of bureaucratization and insulation crudely as ways in which key state organizations managed to collect more tax um and managed to negotiate china's position in the world as well as anybody really could have given uh, the power politics of the time which of course were not favorable to the nanjing government or uh, probably not favorable to any Chinese government that might have been in place at the time. The foreign ministry people actually did a pretty good job and were were, uh, widely recognized as being very good at what they did. That's the background to the whole first book. With the second, um, it was... I ended up going into a a very different kind of direction, kind of evolution that built on and branched out from the first book. But I'll wait for the next question to talk about uh, the project that uh, has just come out.
0: Great. And yeah, a note for parents out there, keep on leaving books in your child's bedroom. And hopefully, maybe if you leave enough of them, I think that's the takeaway from the story about your mother. Yes.
1: And your children too can come, can grow up to become <laughs> impoverished professors somewhere.
0: It's a great success story. Um, <laughs> great. So turning, you set it up perfectly. So turning to this book, um, now you mentioned in it that this book really started in the winter of 1997 and 1998 which was a little while ago. So can you say a little bit about this? How did the book start and how has it evolved? You know, was this the book that you expected in 1997, 1998 to write?
1: This was complete. Well, I didn't expect to write a book in 1997, 98, because in fact, 1997, 98 was the time when um, archives were really beginning to open. And my original idea for a second book project would, was given the relative opening of archives um, to uh, go back to what I hadn't done in the first book due to lack of uh, evidence and to go back to the whole question of civil service and to do a series of linked Um, basically linked articles to look at the different regimes of the 20th century Chinese state, actually going back to the Xinjiang period, uh, the last years of the dynasty when they rapidly uh, tried to modernize and it didn't work very well, they ended up getting overthrown. Um, but my thinking very much was, and it still is, that if you really want to look at the start of a Chinese state that is trying to be modern, you actually have to go back to the last years of the Qing. And so the original idea, which I actually got you know funding for, was to look at the major regimes of the 20th century state, starting with Xinjiang, then another uh, period on the 1930s, uh, a period for, for state building, a peer, uh, another essay on the 1940s, for which I'd collected a huge amount uh, in terms of state dissolution and weakening, uh, an essay on the 1950s, uh, state restrengthening and consolidation under the PRC, and then uh, two chapters on, in effect, contemporary civil service reform. For PRC and uh, ROC Taiwan. And so I had money and I was digging in the archives um, in uh, Shanghai, which was where I was getting uh, probably 80% of uh my, my my materials and archives during what ended up being sort of a seven or eight month collecting trip where I went around to all different kinds of places. But Shanghai was by far the easiest archive to work in and had the most material with the least with the, and getting it was uh, involved the least amount of pain. So I'm there digging away in the archives on civil service. And this, of course, is the days before real computerization and there's no di- digitization. And uh, Bill Kirby had been a friend and an informal mentor because, of course, his first book was on crudely a a kind of state building in the Nanjing decade. So we'd had a correspondence and he became an informal mentor. He was never my teacher, but he was a wonderful uh, mentor and informal and and, um, informal mentor and friend. And he had been, uh, I believe, at this point. Um, doing. Uh, he he'd moved to Harvard, and he uh really gone into administrative work. And I was really hoping that he would get back to um, more of the intellectual work, and you know, more work on state building and so forth and so on. So, one fine day, um. I I think – I can't remember whether he was passing through or he'd been at a meeting. This part I don't remember. But I sort of asked him, so, so Bill, you know, if you have the time, you know, what would you want to work on? And he sort of said, well, I think, you know – the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries. And I kind of said, what's that? And he said, well, it was this big campaign that nobody knows that much about in the early 1950s where, you know, a lot it was very vicious and a lot of people. were killed." So I'm there digging in the archives anyway. And they have to give me good old-fashioned paper Mulu or um, uh, Mulu um, catalogs. And you could look at anything that was open because these were, you know, just on paper. And... Uh, so I'm I'm looking for my stuff anyway, but as I'm looking for my stuff anyway, I notice that under I think it was Shanghai government, you know, number one, which uh, in the archive which had you know books and books and books of of mulu's, I noticed that there was a huge number of panjue or sort of uh, resolutions on campaign to suppress counter uh, the campaign to suppress counter-revolution. And so, of course, this is really before internet or not much internet. So I actually wrote to Bill and said, look, this stuff, if you want to work on this, this stuff is all here. I mean, it's all here, masses of it, you'd need a small team of graduate students or research assistants should go through all this material and code it all, but there's a huge amount here, you know, if this can really, really be done. So that was the seed of the idea. And uh, Bill went on to more administrative, more exalted administrative positions, but this gave me the idea. So in subsequent years, I managed one way or the other to get, you know, enough money to either go to Shanghai or to pass through Shanghai for a couple of weeks. And uh, my habit was to try to finish up my teaching at SOAS as early as possible in December, and then to sneak away to Shanghai, sometimes uh, tacked on other research trips on another project, to get in like a week two weeks in the archive. And so so on my first trip to do this, campaign to suppress counterrevolutionaries, there was a very, very primitive search function on a very old-fashioned laptop, old-fashioned even by the standards of the time. But one of the codes was for campaigns, and campaign to suppress counterrevolutionaries wasn't. So I typed in the code. It was like 1587 or something like that. And then the hard drive of the machine went... and I'm like, there's nothing that they there that will be declassified on this, and to my utter shock, um, the machine kind of went, yeah. and then about ten or eleven uh, files that had been declassified and were open went, Bing, 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 <laughs> and I was astonished. And so I wrote down the numbers of the files that were putatively open, and I went up to the desk and said, May I have these, please? And they're like, Sure. <laughs> And so I had 10 files, which was just enough to rapidly hand copy everything or most things of real importance. And so I think that that time was the only time that I got full access to this particular set of files. I think I may have looked at one or two of the most important ones on, on subsequent December trips, but this Core of stuff, uh, this, this, um, if you will, core of uh, about ten or eleven files, was the, was the, was the heart of an article that I wrote. You know, within a couple of years, on the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries in general, not just for Sunan and not just for Shanghai, but in general, it was the, if you will, the hard um, archival core came from this set of materials. The, the article eventually came out in, I think, 2002 with um, uh, Comparative Studies in Society and History. But in between the period in which um, I was um, working on the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries, I was also still going to Taiwan to collect and to interview people on examination systems in the contemporary period and in the 1950s to do some follow-up stuff. Um, and at this time, I got into a series of conversations with Liu Shiyong, uh, who at that time was in the Institute of Taiwan History. It'd be, I think it was before, I think it was just a commission. It wasn't a full institute at that point at Academia Seneca. And he clued me in that uh, archives uh, on... Uh, the white terror period were just beginning to open uh, and that they were going to open more, significantly more in the subsequent six months to to a year. And so I thought, okay, wow, I can finally do real comparative stuff. I can do real comparative history. And so I wrote up um, uh, uh, an initial grant to do this a small grant, and then eventually um, the project on uh, that I'd originally thought that I was going to be doing on the different regimes uh, of the twenty of the twentieth century Chinese state in terms of civil service. I got um, ultimately one article out of it on, of all things, Xinjiang, which was the period I was least familiar with. Um, which is very odd but that's sort of another story but i found it very and then i wrote um two pieces but they were fair but one was kept getting rejected and the other was too short on a uh, civil service in the 1950s uh and they kind of languished one uh, the one on the 1950s was rejected as as being you know, insufficient, insufficiently new in terms of what it was arguing, or or some or some such, and the article on the 1950s in Taiwan was sh- was short. Um, it was for it was a, for a conference, and I didn't really expand it that much. But the combination of the two articles on the 1950s that did the com- that that implicitly were comparative. Uh, and then learning that, well, actually archives on white terror are going to be opening, uh, gave me the idea, wait a minute, between civil service stuff and the white terror and the the terror stuff, hey, I might have enough to actually do a real, genuine, comparative state-building thing here. And so I thought about it some more, and I thought about, which places had the most uh, open and kind of least sensitive, if you will, um, archival material. And originally I decided that I would do comparative. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculously ambitious. So I already had the core of at least one of the comparisons in terms of terror. I had some stuff already written primitive, but already written on the 1950s uh, in terms of civil service and uh, examination systems and cadre systems. Okay. And then I thought, okay, well, let's think of a project where we go, what the state needs to do from most coercive to least coercive and most benef- concrete benefit for people and so the original idea was not that i was going to do civil serve include civil service at all i was going to do three paired case studies first on terror you know the hard stuff pow second on land reform cuz that is both pow but it also gives real benefit concrete benefit to lots of people and the third case study originally was going to be grain supply uh basically how hungry cities are fed with below market uh prices for grain to basically you know buy off urban areas um, in terms of uh keeping it keeping urban areas quiescent and on the right side of the regime. And so I applied uh, for Jiang Jinguo and Philbright uh money to do this uh, in the interim, I'd, I'd had my daughter. So I was going to be, you know, hauling a a toddler to to all of these, you know, to all of these places. And so, um, I set up basically for Shanghai and for Taipei, because these were places that I knew well, and I figured these would be good bases. And I knew I could, uh, probably one way or the other get good childcare. (laughs) And so, um, this is what I did. In retrospect, I can't really believe that I did this. But I was based in um, most, for the most part in Taiwan at Academia Seneca, the Institute of Modern History, but then with later visits at the Institute of Taiwan History. I was once based at the Institute of Political Science um, as a base for collecting uh, and using the wonderful libraries that are at Academia Seneca. And then I would take month long trips two or six-week trips, to Shanghai uh, over the course of the next several years, because with two grants, um, the Zhang Jinguo Foundation very generously allowed me to use the grant money over the next couple of years and not use it immediately. So, in effect, I had a uh, pickup funding um, that allowed uh, short-term and medium-term trips over the course of three years. Um uh, great thanks to John Jinghua for being so wonderful and so flexible. And uh, I'd set up the child care and you know I kind of felt like you know the old um the old thought about how a sailor has uh has a girlfriend in every port. I had child care within an hour of every major uh, of every major international airport. So I had it in Los Angeles, uh, where my husband was, uh, I had it in Taipei for my research. I had it in Shanghai for my research. Um, uh, it was arranged when I had when I was invited to do. Uh, Trips and do some teaching and lecturing in Vienna. I had it in Providence, Rhode Island, you know, where my parents were. It was and which allowed me to go off and do talks at you know Harvard and Columbia and so forth and so on. It was great, <laughs> um, but it had to be planned very very carefully. So what the original book um, was supposed to be these three paired case studies, and when I sat down to write the book. Um, Certain parts of it made sense and were doable, Uh, but I wrote the book over uh, different periods and my thinking about what I was doing evolved uh, enormously over this period. And uh, I found that even though I had collected the most material on grain supply, the pattern of state building uh, an institution building for grain supply was very, very different than the pattern for, uh, the suppression of, of real and imagined subversion and the pattern for land reform. And I found that the grain supply stuff was so complicated and it was so massive. I probably had, uh, twice as much on grain supply just in terms of stuff to go through than I had for the other two case studies combined. And so after after getting out one article on grain supply, I realized, you know what? I cannot make this book come together in the right way. So I went back to the stuff that in a sense where the project that didn't work out, but that provided the in <laughs> for uh, thinking about the questions of terror and state building in the 1950s in the People's Republic of China. And I went back to the things that I was thinking about and had written on civil service and personnel and cadres and personnel policy. And I went back to that stuff and went back to those materials, much, much I'd collected, but had only gone through in a kind of preliminary way. And that ended up being the first case study. So, I, so the project really sh- shifted shape, if you will, over the course of its very long uh, gestation. And uh, I will say that over, you know, the long haul, with all of the changes, and writing things at di- and writing different parts of the comparison, and writing different parts of individual cases, because this ended up being um, not not just a paired comparison of one thing. It ended up being learning to learning about three very very different areas with very different kinds of materials in two different places and then making the comparisons work so it wasn't sort of one book in terms of materials it ended up being six (laughs) Um, uh, two of which ended up getting chucked out uh, or set to the side at least temporarily and then uh, another two being impressed into service, if you will, and so I spent a year uh, uh, simply rewriting every paragraph of what I'd read, uh, written before, and then the introduction and the and the conclusion. Uh, that took a full year of uh, of close to full time work because yeah, I sort of had the material, but the parts didn't fit, and so forth and so on. And so to make it all sort of work as a manuscript, I had to rewrite every every paragraph. I don't think that a single line in what I'd written originally uh, escaped uh, rethinking, re-editing, and rewriting.
0: Amazing. That's such a great, um, there's so many great stories in there, and that's a great setup into the, you know, the book that made it, the, the, chapters the book, the chapter that, that it, it actually came out, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, into the chapters that survived um, that are in this book uh, that we're talking about. So thank you. And let's dive further into the book itself. Um, As you sort of laid out the book, you know, it consists of five chapters and it is, as you say, it's real comparative history. It's a comparative analysis of of regime consolidation in the People's Republic of China, the PRC and the Republic of China, ROC or Taiwan, in the immediate aftermath of 1949. And the main guiding question that you ask, and I'm quoting from the book here, is how did two such ideologically diametrically opposed regimes manage to impose themselves over territory to which they came as armies of occupation with little natural base in society, build state institutions and in their preferred images, and emerge with such well-consolidated states only a few short years after? And this is a really measured and thoughtful and balanced book. Um, but as you, you, know, you say, and as you've sort of hinted at here... Um, A a comparison of the very large PRC and the very small ROC might initially, um, and perhaps to some listeners, seem like a little bit of an odd or misguided project. And you actually say in the introduction that there's very little comparative work done on these two, you know, taking these two as points of comparison. So, and you've already touched on this a little bit with, you know, making sure you were finding the right archives or that the right archival material was accessible to you. But could you just say a little bit about how you approach the task of comparison and doing comparative history here?
1: Well, um, comparative anything, but particularly comparative history, is very difficult. It's really hard because you got to get one case study right. You've got to get one area with one set of materials uh, more or less right. You've got to get another place with another set of materials right. And then you've got to make the comparison Then you have to have enough rightness in terms of your materials to make the comparison. And this, it turns out, is extremely, extremely difficult to do. It's hard enough to do with one uh, question or area or subject, it is extremely difficult with three. And uh, the reasons for this are multiple, but it goes back to, again, origins in that Uh, the archives and the materials themselves are constructed differently. What different regimes and what different people thought was worthy of preservation in the archives differed and how the archive um, meant broadly, how um, state materials were uh, written and constructed in terms of uh, how things were written and, 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 put down in the first and recorded in the first place differed and differ quite dramatically so in the case and and oddly it was much easier to get a handle on the so-called authoritarian communist ideological people's republic of china because in the early 1950s um yes there is um a Yes, the people who were writing reports um, were, were had a, a Marxist-Leninist uh, tinge of class analysis on uh, everything that they wrote. But in the early 1950s um, the reports written were still remarkably frank and conclu- and included a great deal of detail. Um, on social conditions. And so once you look beyond uh, the categories of class analysis that everyone who was writing the reports had to work with, um, a lot of what is was preserved in the archives has very, very rich sociological and historical detail. Um, and there is a huge tradition of... Um, Marxist-Leninist investigation into social reality and social circumstances, as well as um, a, a sense of planning. So you have uh, the jiwa, you have the plan, and then you have quarterly reports, uh, uh, which are called various different kinds of things. Uh, you have summary reports, you have statistical reports, you have detailed reports on what actually happened and didn't happen, uh, often with very rich historical and sociological detail. So there there are these wonderful, wonderful records in the archive because the people at the time were told that um, learning about this stuff, investigating social conditions, and reporting on it in great detail to superiors was important. And what you get in the early 1950s is just wonderful, wonderful, long detailed reports that that really are very accessible. They're written in accessible language. Um, They provide wonderful, wonderful color and texture and so forth. By the mid-1950s, reports become much less rich in detail and much more formulaic in terms of uh, local cadres reporting on what they think uh, the categories are and what everyone, in terms of their superiors, wants to hear. And they become much less informative. But in the early 1950s, it's just fabulous. Whereas in Taiwan, um, there's surprisingly little in the state state archives. There's reams and reams of regulations and rules, because regulations and rules were what uh, was important. It uh, It was a martial law state that cared deeply about regulations and rules. But there's surprisingly little on uh, what was actually done at lower levels and how and how rules were and laws were accepted and implemented uh, and resisted, and all that kind of stuff. So surprisingly little. Uh, and so actually, it was very it was much more difficult to get useful uh, archival information from Taiwan than uh, was the case. In the People's Republic of China and what ended up really making things work in terms of information, uh, about the period were, uh, the oral histories that I could find, uh, which were very scattered, uh. And sometimes they were buried in in archival compilations where wonderful uh, young scholars went out and they dug up all the people that they could find who actually suffered in, for example, white terror uh, that were appended to uh, cases that were published very, very early on in a collection, I think in 1998. uh, Five volume collection that was very helpful and very useful. And then much later, around about 2007, 2008, uh, the Guo Shiguan Academia uh, Historica put together huge compilations on a few selected individual cases with timelines and sometimes with interviews. And some of these ended up being incredibly, incredibly useful because rather than just the flat, or final resolution to a case uh, that, of course, really didn't allow for much in the way of evidence because everyone was guilty, uh, right? A few of these compilations put out by Guo Guan actually went got the got a number of cases where the archive that was reproduced in bound book form and then made available through Guo Guan for, you know, the equivalent of, I don't know, about $15 uh, U.S. Uh, they included timelines. They included a few interviews where they could get them. But they also sometimes occasionally had not just the official final verdict, or the Panja, but they actually had records of the interrogations of people, so you could hear in people's own words um, what they admitted to and not, and why they joined the uh, Communist Party in Taiwan, and so forth and so on. So it was actually a set of documents that came out in the late, to, in the mid to late two thousands that actually. Uh, made a lot of this uh, work because it provided that intermediary level of putting together the regulations on the one hand with the final verdict on the other. So some of this was also waiting for materials to come out over a period of, I don't know, from actively, you know, I'd been actively working on this for four or five years at the time of which this stuff uh, actually came out.
0: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned using um, uh, published uh, interviews or interviews that were, you know, eventually published um, in your work. And I just wanted to, if I'm remembering the back matter of this book correctly, you did also do a couple interviews yourself. Am I right? I did a few, but not very many. Yeah, Um, I I just wanted to mark that um, for readers as this is, as you've sort of laid out a really rich, a book really rich in archival work and a couple of, you know, you're using, again, published interviews and a couple that you did yourself as well. So I just wanted to mark that. Yes, yes. Oddly,
1: I was actually able to go back to interview materials that i had on my first book where i did the these interviews in the late 1980s when a lot of people were still alive um, from the period of the night you know working in organizations um, for various things in the 1950s and um because of course people's um reminiscences did not cut off in 1949 and one of the things that intrigued me when I was doing interviews in Taiwan in the late 1980s that I always remembered was just one of those little things that I marked down at the time was that when these uh, retired old um, old bureaucrats um, remembered things. They remembered that when I asked them, well, what was the most difficult time? And I was expecting to hear that Kangzhan, the period of the Sino-Japanese War, when they were young men who had to retreat to Chongqing, would have been the most difficult time. And if for them, it wasn't. A number of people in Taiwan said, oh, without a doubt, the first years on Taiwan uh, in the early ni- in 1949, 1950, 1951, that was the most difficult time. Uh, And that always kind of stuck with me. And so actually I was able to go back to things that I'd collected, you know, more, you know, more than 20 years before, um, never imagining that, um, that I would ever write up any of this stuff, but um, a note to all of the PhD students out there, keep all of your interview notes, keep every (laughs) reminiscence because you never know and, and keep them backed up because you never know uh, when they're going to come in handy.
0: Perfect. So you mentioned old bureaucrats. So oh, they're so cute. I love talking to them. <laughs> so let's follow the bureaucrats into chapter one. Um, and this is where you look, uh, you focus on state administrators and at how the PRC and the ROC recruited them. And this is a really fascinating chapter. And here you detail how each went about recruiting, evaluating, and establishing norms of appropriate behavior. Um, differently defined, uh, for their administrators. And you point out that there were some real differences between the PRC and the ROC. Yes. So the PRC, there's no real institutionalized path to recruitment or promotion, whereas in the ROC, there was a formal system with a formal exam and a civil service system, which was... In principle, at least, um, transparent and scientific. But right. you know, there are, in addition to these differences, there are some real striking similarities. In particular, how the PRC and ROC were thinking about the ideal qualities of a you know a perfect government functionary. So yes, can you talk a little bit about this similarity. Where do we see it sort of playing out, and how they're you know recruiting? We really people?
1: see this playing out in. In the in the cases where in the instances where uh, people working for the state are evaluated by their superiors, and uh, this is it was as near as I could tell for the PRC um, a quite um, catch as catch can business. Um, There were a few. In, in a few areas, they floated the idea of regular assessment uh, and regular um, paths to promotion. And it didn't, re- as, at least from what I could tell, it was not institutionalized. And it, it, there were a few trial balloons set up um, and like a few instances of evaluation here and there, but it wasn't really a formalized and institutionalized process at all. And the big expansions uh, of uh, for bureaucrats in the, uh, in the PRC, at least in, in Sunan, tended to be in the wake of big campaigns. Uh, you, for, to, to implement campaigns, you, you needed more hands on deck, so to speak. And in the aftermath of certain campaigns, like the Sanfan, the three antis campaign that cleared out so-called corrupt bureaucrats, um, there was a big need for more. You see a major expansion of the state, not just to replace people, um in on uh, 1951 1952 because people have been purged but you, this is a period of state expansion because you're setting up a whole set of state bureaucracies and institutions ultimately to manage a planned economy so you need a lot more people uh to to man the state and so what you get is a sort of, uh, as I call, it, sort of catch as catch can in terms of evaluation. Hell, we need to expand our numbers by blah 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 blah. Um, and so, what you get typically is uh, an informal set of systems whereby activists or people of good class background who are known are recruited in, and in some cases, and again, this varies by sector, they're given training. Um, to basically be a good cadre and a good uh, servant of the state of the, uh, and a good servant of the revolution. And what is surprising is the degree to which, well, it isn't surprising in and of itself, but a lot of the training consists of um, being good morally in terms of up. Rightness and lack of corruption, and you know, close links to the people, and learning technical skills. Yes, technical skills are important, but um, having crudely a good heart, being a good revolutionary, and being a good revolutionary is defined by uh, obedience to superiors, working hard, taking initiative, and close links to the people. And when you look at Uh, across the strait in Taiwan where there is a very formal system of year-end evaluations and evaluation by numeric numbers and uh, so forth. Um, What you end up seeing is that even in a formal system that's very technically set up and set up to be um, formal and scientific and this and that when you look at the actual categories of what it is that's being assessed, a good 50% of what it is that's being assessed is also highly moralized and normative. So it's also going the extra mile, being real, willing to work hard, um, not taking advantage of your position, being upright, um, listening to superiors, staying late at work when you have to, uh, not being haughty, not being corrupt. And it a lot of the categories end up really being very, very similar. So in the People's Republic of China, which resists systems for evaluation because it's supposed to be who is the good cadre Um, it's done in a different way it's done much more informally uh, and much more by connections and much more by sort of identifying activists and people of good class background who you then recruit in and you train up as quickly as you can uh, to be both uh literate and and able in terms of technical skill but also moral you see exactly the same thing done in a different way but you're but the Guomindang state in taiwan is recruiting basically for very very similar skills uh and a very similar set of moral commitments although it's not a commitment to the revolution per se it is commitment to the state um and doing its bidding and being upright and moral. And I think that this this up, being upright and moral imperative goes way, way back. It comes from the late imperial state and beyond the, and even further back in time. So it's very interesting to see how differently it's done, but how what is being selected for is very, very analogous.
0: Absolutely. And one of my favorite categories that you talk about um, in the ROC with regards to how people are evaluated is their ability to endure hardship. That ability was- <laughs>
1: to endure hardship. It's exactly the same. It's so yes. cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Identical. That was one of my favorite categories. Anyways. <laughs> oh, perfect. I mean, we, and you, this chapter really is about, you know, similarities and differences and that, you know, we continue to see um, in the later chapters. So in chapter two, uh, where you continue to look at regime consolidation. This time, though, you approach it through the lens of terror campaigns. So, campaigns to find and root out internal enemies. And as you've sort of touched on already in our conversation, here you're really focusing on two campaigns, or one campaign and one not called a campaign, but a campaign uh, the campaign to suppress counter revolutionaries in the PRC and the white terror campaign, but not called a campaign uh, in Taiwan, the ROC. And here again, you know, there's a lot of differences the the um, in the PRC. The campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries is widely and openly publicized. Cadres are, are required, instructed to draw in numbers of regular citizens. And it was actively and, an, you know, um, encouraged to be actively violent. In the ROC, however, this move to suppress rebels was never called a campaign, it wasn't openly proclaimed, and there was no mass mobilization. Um, instead, the ROC established a legal framework to remove those that it had that it had decided were enemies of the state. Um, but again, you know there are lots of similarities, and I'll just touch on a few here to set us up. Um, in both, the state arrested and executed subversives, um, and but there were shifting definitions around who constituted a subversive. And I'll just add for listeners that one of my favorite uh, examples that you give here about the shifting categories. Um, is when you talk about how befuddled the members of the Shanghai Lacquer Makers Association were about who they were supposed to be rooting out. Um, And in both um, the PRC and the ROC, those who turned themselves in were initially promised leniency, and then this promise was broken. Um, And more importantly, you talk about how the aims and consequences of these campaigns were the same. So each campaign was intended to shore up internal security. It expanded the state's presence and the lives of ordinary people. And they really instructed the populace on where the lines between good and bad were. Um, And there's another kind of similarity that you touch on as well, in that it's quite difficult to assess the impact of the campaigns. You talk about how statistics for each campaign are and I'm quoting here a combination of inconsistent, incomplete, contested, or falsified. And you have a really thoughtful discussion on how you are evaluating um, each of these. So could you just touch on that a little bit? How did you go about the challenge of estimating the scale of these campaigns?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting uh, that my first um, foray into this question of, of statistics um, was uh when uh I wrote a a a, compa- a comparative piece, a very preliminary one on the prosecution of terror in the two uh, and it came out in an edited volume on on secrecy and uh and terror and state violence against its own people um, published oh gosh. I can't even remember when it was published, but it came out in 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 an edited volume. And so I started grappling with the question of scale very, very early on in this project. And I spent a very, very long time looking at numbers that just didn't add up, particularly for uh, the Republic of China-Taiwan. Because at that point in time, you had... Um, very very large numbers being thrown around by activists in Taiwan and people who had been whose families had been wronged in the White Terror, and uh, journalists who were clearly you know green leaning you know and and pushing the government for more openness about archives and uh, a lot of popular accounts that uh, to my mind. You know they were using you know numbers of you know millions of people suppressed, and that didn't make sense to me. Um, these numbers were clearly exaggerated, and I think based largely on hearsay. But when I went to the documents that I could find, where actually the uh, the nationalist state actually did write up summary documents about what it had been doing, and this was in a in a collection of early stuff that had been kind of snatched and reproduced, Uh, this five-volume series that I I look at. The the first volume of this included a certain number of reports and some statistics up to 1954, and 1954 was only a half year. And I looked at these. They started keeping records, at least the ones that I could uh, uh, access in 19... uh, in September of 1949 and then I went through to um half of 1954 and even uh the internal reports that had these statistics in Taiwan for this period um seemed to, it seemed to me to be obvious that they were still counting as they were um as they you know, as they were writing up these reports, and the inter- even the internal reports uh, were extremely inconsistent, and it- and didn't make sense in terms of actual numbers of people caught, actual numbers of people executed, and so forth. So for the for the Republic of China on Taiwan, it. It was quite difficult to go back to these figures and to come up with a rough extrapolation based on the internal figures uh, that where clearly certain years were undercounts, And we know based on anecdotal evidence that these were the peak years of the white terror. So I ended up extrapolating a, a quite exact kind of weird number based on what seemed to me to be the most credible year in the white terror, uh, which I believe was 1952. Uh, where I had the best numbers. And then I extrapolated back to 1951 and 1950, which we knew were very, very high years in in terms of prosecution of terror. And we know that after 1953, it dropped off very, very suddenly. And 1954, the numbers started to drop precipitously, even, though, even based on uh, the half year. And we know from now, from other documents, that after 1954, there were virtually, uh, you know, there was there was almost none. Uh, certainly, almost no executions. You know, a few cases here and there, but the numbers went down to like one, two, almost nothing. So uh, the numbers for Taiwan were very difficult to extrapolate. But and and what I have is almost certainly an undercount, based on the way that the the time lag for actual recording the this evidence but in the meantime around it's at some point in the mid 2000s there were other scholars working on these kinds of issues with who had access to other materials who came up with numbers for this period that were a bit higher than mine, but they they were more or less kind of in the ballpark of. So in the book, I ended up keeping the original number for Taiwan that was quite precise and actually in some ways quite ridiculous. Um, by saying this is almost certainly an undercount. We're not exactly sure by how much, but this is a credible number at least to work with for now. And as new projects come along, there's one going on uh, in Taiwan at the moment, getting floods and floods and floods and floods of local police documents uh, that I certainly didn't have access to because nobody had access to Uh, the, these numbers will certainly go up in terms of the numbers of people, for example, questioned and and then released for whatever reasons or questioned. And then they spent a certain amount of time incarcerated, but then their cases were dismissed. Those that's still terror, right? But it doesn't Mm -hmm. show up in any of our numbers. So I suspect that in, um, in subsequent years As we get, as, as we get more data, the numbers that I have will go up. But for now, it's a rough working number. Uh, whereas for Shanghai, I have, I, I was amazed to even get Access to the to one doc to to one file that actually laid out exactly in beautiful detail exactly how many people I didn't get numbers of people that were arrested but numbers of cases that were then prosecuted so I have a full year for 1951 which is the height of the campaign and then I extrapolate backwards where I don't have exact numbers, but I have other documents um, that that talk about numbers for prior to 1951. And so I'm able to... So what what I do in the book is I work with the really hard numbers for 1951. Uh, But there were earlier cases of the worst counter-revolutionaries and so forth that had been rounded up before 1951. Um, But for the book... What I work with are the figures I have uh, that are that are quite exact, but I also qualify these figures, saying, you know, this is certainly an undercount in both cases.
0: Perfect, and as as you say, you definitely qualify them. And as you know, as a reader, I really appreciated the the, the explanation that you give of the figures for both cases, because as I said, it it is the kind of level of detail you might expect would be pushed. Um, in some books to the footnotes, but here there's a really well-developed discussion of it. So again, as a reader, I really appreciate it and love that part. Um, great. So that sort of, you know, this brings us really into chapter three. And here again, you're looking at the two terror campaigns. And here your focus is a little different. You really focus on the how, how each uh, the PRC and the ROC Taiwan performed terror, how each campaign was implemented and you really stress that it is here in the implementation, in the how, that you know the core differences between the campaigns can be seen. And one of these core differences, something that I think I mentioned in my summary of chapter two, um, but that is really fleshed out here, is how in the PRC uh, sorry, how unlike in the PRC, in the ROC, it's a very bureau- bureaucratized, centralized terror campaign that's carried out. And you mentioned, I don't think we're going to have time to go into it because I really want to make sure we get to land reform. Yeah, Um, land reform is real cool. (laughs) Yeah, got to love the land reform. We're getting there. Uh, But one thing I wanted to point out for listeners is that you mentioned that uh, centralization in the ROC is particularly evident in how it deals with those who voluntarily surrendered. Um, And you give an example of the breaking up. Of a particularly important communist network, the Taiwan Provincial Work Committee, yes. and this is a great story. Members are, ca- are arrested. One escapes. He evades capture. It's captors. unbelievable.
1: I mean, he, you couldn't make it up.
0: He turns in his collaborators, um, and then he is given a desk job. It's He's just given a, a desk great, job, <laughs> and closely monitored for the rest of his life. Um, so I'll just—that's a brief taste for listeners of this particular tale, which is um, fabulous. Um, and really, really interesting. Um, but I'll just sort of leave that there and turn to Chapter 4. And in chapter four, Chapters 4 and 5, you're looking at, as we said, land reform campaigns. Um, and this is in some ways the other half or at least one other part of state consolidation. The terror campaigns remove bad from the state, and the land reform campaigns generate good. Um, and with the land reform campaigns, you point out uh, that in 1949, both the PRC and the ROC are embarking on land programs that actually have a lot of have a lot in common. And this was something that, you know, before I read your book, I knew. I don't know that much about Taiwan, but I didn't know this at all, and I found it very surprising. So could you talk just a little bit about this similarity? How is it that the PRC and the ROC, despite being so different ideologically, both have decided that land reform is the way forward in 1949-50?
1: Well, land reform, well, it's not surprising that uh, Chinese political leaders would deeply care about uh, land tenure and land reform. Uh, and both. Uh, Because if you think about it, late imperial China was an agrarian empire. Uh, And in fact, uh, in the late imperial period, uh, emperors were deeply, deeply concerned about things like the price of grain and uh, maintaining granaries so that the people would not suffer. So when you get to the 20th century, and this is part of benevolence, this is part of good rule. if the population which is a rural agrarian population cannot eat they will revolt and it's kind of understandable that they would so we'd better make sure that there's enough food uh, and that the people are taken care of in terms of their basic subsistence so I would th- I, I would argue that a deep commitment to a modicum of of um, of fairness, uh, economically and socially is built in because this this is a strain that goes way, 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 way back. But land tenure and land reform in particular is something that becomes very, very important in the 20th century. And so uh, Chinese progressives Uh, in concert, both Marxist and non-Marxist are deeply concerned about land tenure, about the state of the peasantry, and about pushing through different kinds of land reform. So there's a whole genealogy there about different kinds of land reform that I won't bore you with that is evident with both, um, let's call them proto-states, both communist and nationalist in the 1930s and especially the 1940s. And the story goes something like this. Well, land reform for the communists is something that we've promoted. It's part of uh, of, of social fairness. It's part of agricultural productivity. And it's progressive. It's revolutionary. And this is one of the ways in which we won the support of the peasantry of the poor peasantry in particular. And the I think the logic went something like this. Land reform, good, progressive, revolutionary. We pushed it through. We made it work in campaigns in North China. And this is part of our success and appeal. And it's part of why we won the Civil War. So we're going to implement it in all of China because land reform it's it's part of what we do. And some and for slightly different reasons, actually very different reasons. Um, The the nationalists come to the same conclusion, oh my God, we were totally ineffective at land reform, at dealing with the agrarian problem, at land tenure issues. We better get our act together and, and implement a good version of land reform that is our own, that will demonstrate our benevolence to the people of Taiwan and also provide our model for China and for the rest of the world that we are a good government and that we are fit to rule. So there's a very similar genealogy in, in terms of why Chinese political elites, I think no matter where they are, were in the middle middle of the 20th century were gonna deeply care about land tenure and want to implement land reform. But for both, it was a symbol of success. It was deeply invested with regime legitimacy in both places. Uh, And the impetus to push it through, though, was a little different. It was, yes, it's successful. It's what we are. It's what we do for the PRC. And, oh, my God, we didn't do this. We didn't manage it. Uh, We failed. And this is what part of why we failed. We better do it right here in Taiwan. Uh, So you get a deep commitment to land reform in both places that has a kind of, in the the early part, a similar kind of genealogy. And it's not just communists and nationalists, progressives and socialists and non-communists All around the world care deeply about this in the middle of the 20th century. So you have people like Wolf Ladijinsky, who's a deracinated uh, Russian-Jewish immigrant who ends up becoming a, a specialist in land issues and land reform issues and land tenure issues. He's now what we would call a development economist, but back in the middle of the 20th century, there was no such category. He ends up working for SCAP in Japan and being instrumental in pushing through land reform uh, in Japan. And he commutes to Taiwan to offer advice uh, that first isn't taken that seriously and then is taken very seriously by the Joint Commission on Rural Reconstruction. So you have a whole set of American-led but international Advisors who care about land reform. I mean, they're the they're the early generation of uh, of development specialists who go who are regionally located usually, but who come in basically as consultants who are also deeply committed to land reform. So there's a very wide international uh, internationalized set of people, networks, and interests that are all deeply committed to land reform in this period. Um, and then they go to Southeast Asia, and then they go, to, they go to Vietnam, and they go to Cambodia, and they go to, to all kinds of places.
0: And everyone gets land reform. And <laughs> everyone
1: her. gets land reform. But <laughs> in Taiwan, um, the political leadership that is deeply committed to this needs to distinguish its version of land reform from the communists version at every stage and at every turn. Uh, so if the communists over there are violent and mobilizational and mass mobilizational uh, and kill people, we have to be very careful, very careful to do this in a, in a procedural way, in a planned way, in a process-oriented way that brings that is scientific, that brings people in and so forth and so on. And no violence. Absolutely no violence. Even landlords are going to be, we're going to set up incentives and bring them in and give them shares in uh, state, uh, state-owned companies uh, and help and accelerate their transition out of agriculture and in, into being small capitalists uh, with the state in partnership with the state and so on.
0: Perfect. And as you've just said, and as you very, you know, clearly make the case in this chapter, um, regime legitimacy is is really, was very, very important here. And this is something that, you know, takes us into chapter five, where you really hammer this home, I think. Um, and here in chapter five, you are continuing to look at land reform, except you're, you know, turning this focus again slightly to look at the theater of land reform and how each um, is soliciting public, uh, sorry, popular participation, although in very different ways. And as you sort of touched on already, um, you you engage here in the question of how uh, how successful these land reform campaigns were. So you talk about how um, each you know, PRC and the ROC Taiwan asserts that their land reforms were a success. And I think it's fair to say you sort of call this into question a little bit. So in the PRC, just to pick one example, um, you talk about mass struggle sessions um, where the idea was that the masses were supposed to be stirred up. Um, they were supposed to play a part. But as you point out, the, the degree to which they played this part willingly and spontaneously is a little uncertain. Um, And then in in Taiwan, when you're talking about state violence and local participation, you point out that while official accounts maintain that land reform in Taiwan was peaceful and orderly, um, there are also reports of unrest. So in this, is there a moment or an example that stands out to you that sort of touches on this ambiguity and uncertainty around the success of land reform?
1: Well, um, in my view the reason some of the reasons given for land reform we need to do this to raise the raise up the poor tenants of the poor peasantry uh and uh land holdings are too extremely concentrated it's unfair and landlords are sort of parasitic classes and so forth well that's that's the narrative and therefore us coming in and rectifying this is important for regime legitimacy Actually, if you look at the numbers carefully, um, it's not at all clear that land reform was economically necessary in either place because if you look at um, Sunan and if you look at Taiwan, landlords were already in fairly steep decline. Um, Tenancy was already in quite steep decline in both places. So in Sunan, what you had, particularly in the area around Shanghai, uh, you had already in the late 40s and early 1950s uh, a situation in which many of the able bodied males actually left the family farm and went off to the city or went off to the suburbs of cities to work in factories because factory work was better paid and more prestigious. And so there was ve- – and, the, and they may have returned to the, to the land holdings really only at harvest time when, you know, you needed to have um, a, a lot of extra labor. So what you have is a situation in which, at least in Sunan, there was really not a lot of uh, – pre-existing hatred of landlords because the landlords that stuck around tended to be the ones who got on well with their neighbors and they weren't particularly exploitative and they were actually pretty good guys in a lot of cases. So it was often quite difficult to stir up the masses. Now we actually do have other evidence that indicates that the masses in many cases were stirred up and they did shout for violence uh, and commit violence against accused landlords. So my, my um, data set, if you will, is quite ambiguous on this question. And I do not have a, a clear document or a clear report that states uh, when the ma- the cases where the masses really were stirred up and called for violence against evil landlords, um, versus the ones that uh, the- versus the mass struggle sessions that did not go off that well, what is clear is that in most cases, more than fifty percent. Uh, the people who were being put on stage and struggled against weren't even landlords. They tended to be people called local bullies or local tyrants, oh, bah, uh, who were local power holders, who were exploitative and obnoxious, and who, in many cases, um, violent emotion against them could be stirred up. Um, And this is where things get quite murky because, oh, bah, or uh, local baddies, local tyrants, um, were also a category, a major category of people who were put on stage and struggled against in the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries. So what you get, which was ongoing at the same time, so what you get is a merging of categories, you get a merging of campaigns because the way in which the struggle sessions were conducted for the campaign to suppress scandal revolutionaries and land reform campaigns were identical. And so we may never get good numbers on actual landlords struggled against versus, oh, bah, or local tyrants or local baddies struggled against uh, because at least in this region the campaigns in practice were not separated in rural areas so that's a long kind of digression but it's very difficult to know um how many of the masses really did think that landlords were baddies. Uh, we know that the state had trouble in coming up with enough la- enough landlords who were hated uh, to struggle against. and in some cases, uh, they substituted the the sons who were students or the wives or the old mothers, the grannies uh, of landlords, because most landlords kind of weren't around anymore. They'd migrated to cities. They were engaged in business ventures and so forth and so on. And we know for sure that in cases where local cadres made substitutions like old women and young students, um, that the masses did not really go for this. They didn't like it that much. They actually had some sympathy with the accused. But it's very, very difficult to separate out when the masses were not stirred up and when they genuinely were because, of course, local cadres had an interest in saying local masses were stirred up and consciousness was raised because this was how these staged events were supposed to go off. But they were heavily manipulated. They were heavily stage managed. And we know that in some cases, the baddies actually went through Um, dress rehearsal struggle sessions first um, with only a select selection of the masses and the activists. So one can only wonder in the cases where you had dress rehearsals what the target, um, what the baddie uh, thought. His was definitely a clearly defined role in a morality play. But how it actually went off on the day seems to have varied, at least in Sunan. Um, And I cannot, for the life of me, come up with hard numbers or qualitative evidence that would give clues as to the occasions where uh, the struggle sessions went off well from the perspective of the state versus not. I can identify cases where it didn't go off that well and some of the reasons why, but only some of the reasons why. The rest is kind of guesswork and and conjecture. In the case of Taiwan, um, there were no baddies for land reform. The baddies for uh, what we now call the White Terror were arrested in the dead of night and whisked off and sequestered. Um, in the case of land reform, there were no defined baddies for what I would call a series of land reform campaigns. Uh, the most important w- of which was um, the the Gengduo um, Yuchitian, the the land to the tiller uh, campaign, uh, which was very clearly a campaign, even though it wasn't called a campaign, uh, that was largely launched because earlier efforts uh didn't work for land reform uh for rent reduction and so forth really didn't work that well and so what one had for the land to the tiller campaign were a series of smaller campaigns that i won't bore you with the detail of but one key part of this was the holding of elections to uh organizations that i call land reform committees they they were called by different names but i translate them into english as land reform campaigns. And this is quite interesting because you had to mobilize enough people to put themselves forward for election to land reform committees uh, that, uh, and the land reform committees were the lowest level of decision-making on individual cases for land reform complaints. Uh, So to, to adjudicate boundaries and, you know, the payment of back rent, and these these kinds of issues. And so what you had were, uh, he- again, heavily stage-managed, but stage-managed in a very procedural way. Elections to land reform committees where the local land reform committees had a majority of tenants. Uh, there, so it was designated, typically, there would be three or four tenants. There would be two representatives of landlords. There would be two uh, freeholders. And there would be somebody from the local land office who acted in as ex officio, probably in actually running the meetings and keeping these things in order. And and it took several years actually to find it, then to get access to a set of archives on Taiwan that actually demonstrated these land reform committee meetings and how they worked but eventually I did get access and it was absolutely amazing it was really fascinating to see how procedurally based these things actually were and how they worked with rules and and so forth so you have limited invitation of participation in Taiwan for the election to these uh, committees in the first place um, heavily controlled, but they were nonetheless elections. And then you have, it's very odd, a committee to which the first level of decision-making on land reform issues is delegated to this committee. And then more difficult cases are passed up. Maybe 10 to 15% are passed up to the regular state organizations um, and so it's really fascinating to see how, in Taiwan, the state, in effect, delegates its most basic level of work to a kind of quasi-official committee that is part state and part society. Um, whereas things happen in the People's Republic of China in a very different way. There are mass organizations, but uh, and peasant um, and peasant associations, which are organized and are active in this early period but they're as near as i can tell the peasant association's role was in getting people to go out to the meetings it what the peasant association really didn't have a lot of input into the actual decisions of who it was who was going to be put on the stage they didn't have a lot of input into uh the staging and the management and uh and uh who would be called on when uh for uh these mass accusation sessions and peasant associations sort of faded out as important bodies as the local state became stronger and had more cadres and had better organized party committees the peasant association as near as i can tell didn't matter as much they they existed but i think largely on paper they existed Uh, after this uh, campaign. Uh, And in Taiwan, you have later elections to these committees and they were certainly in operation through uh, the 1950s and into the 1960s at the very, very least. So you have an institutionalization of these committees uh, in Taiwan. So popular participation is solicited in both cases, but in Taiwan, it's heavily controlled and institutionalized, and in the case of the People's Republic of China, the the apex of political participation is in the mass struggle meeting, where the masses are roused uh, to participate in and to and to be complicit in violence, deep violence committed. Against baddies defined by the state, and so there's there's this merging of individuals in the masses with each other and calling for violence on state determined terms and by state determined categories and and the state so there's individual merging with each other as the mass, and then there's the masses merging with the state as the epitome as the apex as the gauchal or the high tide of Participation, so it's very, very different. Uh, the uh, way in which uh, participation is solicited and then
0: expressed. Absolutely, and as you you know you say throughout the book continually, it's the how that's the really how. different. It's yeah. it's the how. It's the performance. Those are where the differences really come out.
1: Yeah, it's it's really I'm, cool stuff.
0: Yeah, definitely. And there's so much. I'll there's so much really cool stuff uh, in this book uh, that we just haven't had a chance to talk to here, but I hope that this is sort of touched on some of the big ideas. And I hope this gives the listeners sort of a sense of all, you know, just, just the very tip of what they can expect um, in this book. Um, but now uh, that you're finished with it um, and we're coming to the end of our conversation, oh, yeah. what what are you working on now? What's inspiring you at the moment?
1: Well, It's it's interesting uh, in that uh, right now I'm going in two almost opposite directions with two. uh, One's a little mini project and one is going to be a major focus. Um, One of the things that I uh, focused on uh, that was very, very different in the late 1990s um that I got small amounts of funding money exchange money to go and pursue was a, some preliminary work on forestry and forestry administration because I'm very interested in how the local state makes up generates capacity and I wanted to do something that involved natural resources and that was contemporary of contemporary policy relevance and so I hit on forestry so I did some preliminary work on this and now what I am deeply committed to doing is going back to forestry, but in a very different context, because in the late 90s, the questions were all about how China was going to manage its own forestry and manage its own deforestation. Well, the state is much 20 years on, the state is much stronger, and it's more or less managed to crack down on its own forestry, most severe problems by major tree planting campaigns and also having the state capacity to forbid the cutting of old forest. So what's there is, at least in theory, being preserved and replanted and and so forth and so on. But it's now crudely exported the problem of deforestation indirectly through its demand or um, raw materials and the one that I'm interested in is wood and uh, I spent while I was writing this book and going on research trips and you know raising uh, a young child I was also editor of the China Quarterly and the the China Quarterly was it was great fun I loved editing it I was it was just so wonderful Um, seeing great work every day and it, it was just terrific loved it. Um, But as one of the privileges of being editor of the China Quarterly, I was able to um, organize my own conferences and meetings and come out with special issues. And one of the things that I was committed to was the question of internationalization, starting with China, Africa. So through the editorship, I was able to do two wonderful conferences and come out with two greatly fun edited volumes one on China Africa and one on China Latin America and so I am now interested in going back not just to China Africa and China Latin America but now we have the whole uh, it's not just going out so to too but it's the belt and road initiative which is of course more organized it's bigger it's grander it has a more global scale so I'm interested in going, back in a way to questions of forestry and natural resources but also being contemporary in looking at Belt and Road Initiative and how this has an impact both both positive and negative on uh, things like old growth forests and plantations in places like uh, Mozambique, for example, uh, Central Africa, if I can ever get access, uh, China has a, min, uh, a ministerial level um, ag- agreement with uh, Ethiopia to reforest Ethiopia. That would be wonderful to do. So this is still in very, very, a very, very early stage, uh, if you will. But I'm tremendously excited about kind of going out and going international, but also looking at questions of state capacity and performance and counterperformances. The other side project is uh, going in a slightly different methodological direction, but with materials that I came across while I was doing this book. and one of my late trips to Taiwan where I desperately needed some images uh, because I had great images for PRC in terms of struggle campaigns and so forth and people being on stage, but nothing, absolutely not very little for Taiwan. I needed a good headline or two because this was all printed and on paper and so forth. So I went to Taiwan and I went to the Taiwan branch of um, the National Central Library And uh, went to a couple of periodicals that I knew from the early 1950s just to find a random, almost random sort of headline or two about uh, uh, a rebel being caught and processed, uh, because this is how information was communicated at the time. And while I was there, this is always the way you stumble across stuff that you had no idea. I came across, I couldn't believe it, an entire cartoon series called New um, Female Fay Bandit Gan Ganbu, a whole melodramatic cartoon strip series. And I found this so incredibly interesting the female young cadre is the stand in for china and w- where people went wrong and were misguided and then they lost everything and so forth and so i made copies of the of the entirety or almost the entirety i'm missing a couple of strips series Put it to the side, and started digging around a bit, and then I found out that New Fei Gan, it's a whole trope, it's a whole thing in the early nineteen fifties, and under nationalist rule in Taiwan, they made a they, it was a play. There were memoirs, heavily edited, of course, and you know who knows how real they were, of two different new Fagon figures in the late 40s and early 50s in in Taiwan. It became a film. <laughs> so I now have this collection of cultural, very, very cultural materials that I've never worked on this kind of stuff before. But it's all about the propaganda and uh the figure of the new fagan and so in my spare time i hope to be going back to that cuz we know a huge amount about propaganda and systems and cultural production in the prc under the communists but this is not really a topic that has that that people have done for the comparable period uh in for the roc taiwan so i hope to to get uh some writing done out of this uh, quite different turn, but on uh, on the same period, just because the material is so much fun and I'm going to need a, bi- a bit of a break. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they both sound like amazing projects and filled with really fun, really exciting material. Uh, I really wish you the best of luck with those. Thank I mean, this, you. This book is the book that we're talking about, uh, is so rich, so nuanced, so beautifully done. So I have no doubt that both of those projects will be similarly so. Thank you, Julia, so much for writing this book and for coming on the podcast to, for, to talk about it.
1: Not at all. I, it was a pleasure. It was, it was a lot of fun.